Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse podcast episode number 23 today. At the Powerhouse, we combine psychological and philosophical insights, practical skills and storytelling. We've been on a break because Hugh has been writing. So instead of books he hasn't written yet today, we will talk about what he is actually writing right now. The working title is Everything is Breaking and Everything Will Be Fine. Hi, Hugh. Hey, Leah. Hi. In another episode, you shared about the creative process of writing a book, but I think it was at a time when you were not writing a book at the moment. So now you're in the middle of the process. How is your life as a writer right now? <laughs> yeah, um, weird, I would have to say. It's always weird. Every book is different. Um, but they're always a kind of horrible mixture of uh, frustration and pain and um, and then a, and panic, I guess, also. Um, and and then these moments where suddenly I see something that works. I mean, essentially, I write a great deal, and a lot of it is just rubbish. It's terrible. It's very bad writing. Um, but I kind of have to write that in order to get into whatever state I'm in to write stuff that's worthwhile. And I don't always know that I'm doing it. You know, sometimes I have to write stuff, leave it alone, go back the next week and go, like, the bit I thought was rubbish is okay, and the bit I thought was great is just pretentious nonsense um so yeah it's it's like that <laughs> it's like that how do you know that it's what's rubbish and what's quite a good piece um because i reread it a lot and i'm a pretty volatile character so if i read the same thing 10 times in on 10 different days in 10 different states and it still speaks to me then I know it's it's reasonable or it's as good as I can do I'm not you know I'm sure there are a lot of people who can write better than me but um it, it's kind of robust over time I suppose that's the the question because I go through all these different states I get all very intellectual or very uh emotional or very objective or whatever and they're just um, very narrow angles yeah so I have to go through a lot of them to discover something worth saying mm -hmm. so we we haven't really talked about what your book is about can you tell us a little bit more about the topic or maybe the category of the book you're writing currently? Oh, well, if you look in the book, you'll find something about categories. But um, so one of the things you, you, you kind of need if you're selling a book, right? if you're selling a book to a publisher or if you're going on TV and, and, and you're being interviewed and they say, Tell me, Hugh, what's your book about, right? And what you have, what you need is what's called the elevator pitch. So you imagine 
you know, you've got this movie you've been desperately trying to make or this book that you desperately try to publish and you get in a lift and you find that in the lift with you right there, it's just you, you and one other person and that other person is Steven Spielberg, right? Now you've got about 45 seconds before he gets out on his floor to pitch your movie or your book, right? And that's called the elevator pitch. And it's essentially, it boils down to three bullet points. And normally people will say, oh, you know, it's a cross between Titanic and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So you go, yeah, that's what it is. Brilliant, right? <laughs> uh, but more sexy, right? Um, and the, so that's kind of what most movie make writers, script writers, and most book writers try to develop, okay? So I've got my first bullet point, right, about my book, which is my book is the sort of book that cannot be reduced to bullet points. Which is a nightmare, obviously. <laughs> but it's also the book about why it can't be reduced to bullet points. And that is because there's a huge difference between knowing something and understanding something. So knowledge is stuff we can accumulate, we can arrange, we can put it in order, we can find the three best bits of knowledge and call them our bullet points. But understanding is a bit like being in the right place where you see exactly the same knowledge as everybody else, but you see it in more detail, with more color, with more nuance, with a better, richer, deeper soundtrack, with more depth of field, with more knowledge and understanding about what happened beforehand and the sorts of things that might happen afterwards. You see exactly the same world as everybody else, but you see it more clearly. And that's the difference. Actually, it's not the difference. It's just one difference between knowledge and understanding. Now, I'm not sure if we already had the three points listed, you said. <laughs> so is there anything to add? Yeah, there were three points in there. Yeah. So the geeky people, if, if they want to, they can re replay this and they go, oh, yeah, he did say three things. Yeah. I would do. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and now I'm a little bit curious. Like, do you remember a, a time yourself or a moment yourself you, you experienced the movement from knowledge to understanding? And what was it about? Um, I, can, I can tell you a little story um, about my lack of understanding, which is kind of easier to demonstrate. So I, I was a hypnotherapist, still am in ways, and I used to teach hypnotherapy. I used to teach people who wanted to be therapists. And undoubtedly the greatest hypnotherapist of the 20th century was a man called Milton H. Erickson. And he used to teach by telling stories, typically stories of his own clients. He would say, I saw this couple once in La La La, he'd tell the story. 
So he used to tell this story about a young couple who came to see him when he was um, uh, working at a university. So they were students and he was a professor, but they also knew he was a hypnotherapist. And they came to see him and they were seriously distressed because the young woman was pregnant and she really wanted a, a termination, an abortion, because her parents were like super religious and they would give her hell and it was going to make, she wasn't going to be able to do her studies. It was just a nightmare. And she and her boyfriend turned up and they said, look, we're, we're really frightened, but we need your help to go through with this abortion, this termination, which is too scared and we, we really need you to help. Well, Erickson talked to them for quite a long time and he, he was kind of, in a way, probably trying to get them to reconsider. But they were like desperate. They really, no, we've got to have this termination. So he said to them, now look, yes, I can probably help you, but you will have to come. We've run out of time today. You'll have to come back next week. But there is one thing you must not do between now and next week. Okay? Otherwise, we're in terrible trouble. You must not think of a name for the baby. And he sent them away. Well, they came back the next week. They'd thought of a name for the baby. And she took a year out of her studies and she had the baby and her parents were crazy mad. And then they came to love her and the baby and she and the boyfriend got married and she went back to university and she finished and they all finished happily ever after. And I used to tell that story as an example of two things. One is indirect suggestion. If I say to you, do not think of elephants, what happens, right? Um, so do not think of a name for the baby. So that's example one. Point two is it's highly manipulative, right? It's, it's a super manipulative intervention, effectively pushing these two kids in a certain direction. And that's what I used to explain to people that, you know, that's one of the things you can do with suggestion and with indirect suggestion. And I also said, well, you know, Ericsson could never get away with that kind of thing these days because it's way too manipulative and we don't work like that anymore. And after I'd been teaching and using this example for maybe a, a year and a half, it suddenly occurred to me one day that I didn't understand what I was talking about. I hadn't really understood the whole story. Because if those two young people had not been able to think of a name for the baby or had not, um, were able to not think of a name for the baby, then they wouldn't really need Ericsson's help and they probably would go for the termination. And I just hadn't seen that possibility at all. But actually what he was offering them, he was pushing them into a situation where they were going to decide based on their deepest instincts, based on what they really cared about. And if they didn't really care, they wouldn't really care, then they would go do that termination. Thanks for sharing. So when we return to the book uh, you're writing at the moment, can you remember what led you to write this book? <laughs> and if yes, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> oh, God. Um, 
I've been, um, it's been bugging me for years, if not decades, really. I, I, I mean, it, the, some of the earliest thinking that is in this book actually happened when I did my PhD back in the 90s. Um, and it kind of kept developing and evolving and so on. And at the same time, actually, uh, the world has gone increasingly mad. And what I'm talking about in the book is the way that our thinking has become distorted. And there are ways to think more clearly. But we typically don't do those ways. We, we, we overlook them. We collectively, we imagine we know what we're doing and that we've got the right idea and we're heading in the right direction. Although clearly a lot of the evidence points in the, is, is that we're not doing that. We're making a big mess of the world and our own societies and all sorts of things. But we imagine we've got the right method and we haven't. We've overlooked a huge amount of our understanding, of our capacity for understanding and our intelligence. And so it's as though we're looking with, we, we've restricted our vision to one quarter of its normal size. And we imagine that looking through these very narrow blinkers, we've got a more accurate view of the world. And so how did that happen? <laughs> how did that happen? Was it always like that? Uh, well, was there development? I, I think that every age has its challenges. Yeah. Uh, but most typically what happens is that we invent something new and we think, oh, it's brilliant. This thing's wonderful. It's really, really good. I mean, For example, the internet, we love, isn't it wonderful? You can get information all over the world. You can, it's got this infinite library and, and we can talk to people like you and I are talking to each other from you know, 6,000 miles apart. I mean, how wonderful is that? Isn't that brilliant? The internet's wonderful, isn't it? And we see all the good and wonderful things you can do with it. You think it's just fantastic. It's great. Let's have more of this. In fact, let's do as much as we possibly can using this amazing, wonderful new technology. And, and we kind of pile in and we do a lot of that. And we forget to notice that pretty much everything has a downside. It's got an upside and it's got a downside. So the downside of the internet is increasingly becoming clear. It allows a small number of enterprises to control uh, by means of algorithms and gatekeeping the information you are most likely to get. It's not an absolute control, but it's a kind of general kind of influence, which makes certain things more likely to come your way than other things. And it also puts a lot of power in a small number of hands. It makes it possible, for example, to uh, lock down entire societies, to say everybody, to everybody, you've got to stay in your house and you're not allowed out. Now, before the internet, that was a ludicrous idea. You can possibly do that, right? 
people just had to get out and do stuff, right? But the lockdowns, which turn out to be medically a disaster, were made possible by the internet. And the various bits of propaganda that are floating around at the moment are all amplified by the internet. So the internet does two things. One is it makes, it makes the gatekeepers, the small number of people who are capable of changing the algorithms, makes them very, very important. And it also amplifies the extremes of debate. So the people who really, really hate something or the people who really, really love something, their voice is disproportionately loud. Most of us aren't that worked up. <laughs> we just think, oh, well, life's not so bad, really. Um, and, but we don't go online to scream at each other, life's not so bad, really. <laughs> it, the, the people who are screaming online are the people who's going, it's appalling, and you lot are fascists, and you lot are fascists. No, you're the fascist. No, you're the fascist, and so on. And the argument goes on and on, doesn't it? And that distorts, it's turned out it's distorted our politics. It's got a, a poor influence both on the traditional media and the and the politicians because the traditional media are now as it were led by the 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 random fights of the internet and the and the number of censors of the internet so i mean without going into even more detail here's a good thing or at least something with great potential the internet we all think it's wonderful and in the early days, I remember going to California in, I guess it was the 90s, and being introduced to The Well, which was one of the very first um, sort of public spaces on the internet. You could, you could, could post stuff and have little discussions and so on. It, it's very retro now. But it was like, wow, you know, you can connect to people over any topic you want and you can work together. I mean, it was very hippie and positive and, and wonderful. But then the dark side has become more manifest. And we're not very good at dealing with that. We were too enthusiastic to begin with. And we don't really know how to address the problems that have now arisen. Don't we need these loud voices to make change happen? Um, but then, uh, I mean, yeah, if, if you need the change, it depends what change, I mean, which changes do you need? I mean, is it a good example? Is it a good idea, for example, to 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 um, I mean, let's take something controversial, a modern change that's been a big a big deal in the UK and in America, is to say that um, uh, we shouldn't call women women in a medical context. You must call them. I've forgotten what it's called. You know, uterus havers or. or, or breastfeeders or some nonsense like this, because this we must change the language because we must be more inclusive to the extraordinarily small number of people who um, have who, who, who have started in one sex or whatever it's called, gender, and believe themselves to be in the other. Now, without even going into whether that's a legitimate claim, 
the change is that we must change and stop using this word woman that we kind of knew what it meant until recently and start using other words. Well, is that a good change? I mean, clearly you do have to have lots of shouty voices if you want that change. You're a woman, do you think it's a good change? No, I don't think so. So one of the one of the delusions of modernity, well, an awful lot of them actually, but one of the the ones that's been quite popular, I guess, for the last couple of hundred years, is that what humans are doing now, what we actually do, is the next is is, sort of, is progress, and progress is good, and in some way it's kind of mashed up together with the notion of evolution so that you know evolution we understand is the survival of the fittest it's a it's a theory which claims to explain the 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 how human beings and every other creature actually on the on the planet has has become the way it is and somehow the claim is that what we're now doing is in some kind of way a continuation of this evolution, this survival of the fittest thing, that the, the human brain has evolved to be bigger and better than perhaps the brain of Neanderthals. And therefore what we're doing with the brain is that it were the next stage of evolution. I mean, it's a messy argument in, in logical terms, but it's a broadly accepted one that what we're doing is a good thing and it's heading in the right direction. There are those who might disagree. Uh, that reminds me of the topic about literacy in your book. Uh, you're talking about the evolution of literacy and the problem problems or um, if let's say effects it had on society. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean. Uh, I mean, literacy is, is basically the, the primary technology of modernity. It makes possible science. So clearly the benefits are stupendous. They're just vast. I mean, look around you now. Everything, pretty much everything you see is a, the output of literacy. You know, the, the building you're sitting in was made possible because somebody could write down some plans and so forth. But there are just like every other technological advance, there are some downsides. Is that makes it easier to think in terms of abstract and those tendencies tend not to be acknowledged we don't notice that we're thinking differently to be more precise abstraction is an extraordinarily powerful and useful cognitive tool it's wonderful it's the basis of scientific thinking if you like but in terms of human activity it's always less than adequate to describe the fullness of human experience. It takes one aspect of what we're doing and talks about it. Uh, 
but it leaves behind everything else. And unless we return and act on the basis of the entirety of our context, we're going to make a mess of things. We're going to act on the basis of a partial understanding of the world, as opposed to a more complete understanding of the world. What I found quite interesting uh, when you were writing about this topic of literacy, um, I think you used some examples of studies that were made with a group of people called, I can't remember, Pinyas, is it correct? Pariah. Pariah. Yeah. Um, Actually, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it well either. <laughs> there was a, so there's a wonderful book actually, which I thoroughly recommend, um, written by an academic, but it's, it's essentially for public access, if you like. He's written it for anyone who's interested in reading books and it's called, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. And it's about this man who spent about 30 years with a, a tribe in the Amazon basin, a long way from the rest of us, who live very differently uh, from, from the rest of us. Uh, their language, hardly anybody speaks their language apart from them. There's there not a, a lot of them. And uh, this guy, Daniel Everett, learned their language, but he's pretty much the only person from outside their, their tribes who's learned it properly. It's, there, there is no writing in this language. And these people, basically don't believe anything that they can't see for themselves or is not told to them by someone whom they know and trust. So you might say to them, you know, in, in Paris, uh, I met a man who, who told me about surrealism. And that's like complete, they just wouldn't, they're not interested. It's just like, no. <laughs> You know, you met a man who told you about something else. So um, now Daniel Everett, the, the author, he, he was a missionary and, and he, he, he told them about Jesus. That was his, that was the job. That was why he went there. And that's why he was learning language to translate the Bible. And he said, he told them about Jesus. And, and one day they said to him, so um, this Jesus, what does he look like? And, and Daniel says, well, I, I, I don't know. You know. He lived a long time ago. And they said, what do you mean you haven't met him? And, and Everett said, well, no, I, I didn't. I said, oh, well. And that was it. He, he was no longer worth paying any attention to. Right? <laughs> if no one alive has met him, it's not of any interest or relevance to my life. Um, so they live radically inside their own immediate context. And they just don't do abstraction. They don't even do numbers because numbers are a classic case of abstraction. Um, they are, their world is governed by utility. Like, what do I need that for? Do I need it? Yeah, I know. Then I'm going to really understand it. And they live incredibly successfully in quite a challenging environment. Um, so their, their life works very, very well. But they are not interested in abstract ideas. They don't have abstract ideas. Um, yeah, it's good stuff.
<laughs> I want to go there. But <laughs> 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 I can't communicate only with hands and body language. Um, so do you think that the, the invention of literacy of writing and, and reading um, disconnected us somehow from reality we're living in right now? I don't think the invention did uh, because most of us had nothing to do with it for an awfully long time. Um, but I th think it's one of the traps, if you like. So I talk about um, learning to dance. So if you learn to dance, and the dance I happen to know is Lindy Hop, right? And if you go to a Lindy Hop class, it's likely, it's not always the case, but it's likely somebody will teach you uh, a six count move. So rock, step, 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 like quick, quick, slow, slow, or quick, quick, triple step, triple step, right? A six count move. It takes six beats to do it. The people who literally created Lindy Hop, African-Americans in Manhattan in the 1920s, they didn't say to themselves one, two, three, and four, five, and six, you know? They just went right? They were dancing to the music, right? It was teachers who made up, who abstracted from the, the whole wonderfulness of this dance, oh, the footwork, the beats, the steps, that little move takes six counts. And so in order to teach it to idiots like me, they make it simple. They take a, the simplest bit out, the step, step, triple step, triple step, and say, that's a six count move, right? And, and the illusion you have when you start dancing is that's the basis of the move. That's the basic, that's the fundamentals, right? Nonsense. It's just, a stepping stone. It's a way to get into the dancing. And you have to learn that language in order to learn to dance. The dance is not in that step, step, triple step, triple step. The dance is in feeling the music with your partner, communicating with your partner, perhaps even communicating with the band. The dance is the feeling and the action going together. It's like a conversation. It's not, a conversation is not speaking words. And a dance is not doing moves. You can't reduce the dance to a set of instructions. Otherwise, we just sit there passing each other notes, saying, here, here you are, there's a set of instructions, you send me one. Nonsense. The essence of the dance is the engagement with your partner and the music. So this literacy is a bit like the six counts. You know, it's wonderful so long as you remember once you've learned those six counts to come back to dancing, to come back to real life, to come back to embodied experience and the dynamic world that's right around you right now. But if the way you see the world around you now is through these filters created by literacy, through abstractions or ideology, you're in a mess. You do not see reality correctly. And indeed, that's the case for many, many people right now. Because those abstractions, those consequences of literary have invaded their way of thinking, and they're not aware of it. 
And we have to, you can't get rid of literacy. It's a boon, it's a wonderful benefit, it's a great thing, but we have to master it. And the same is true of the internet and all the other technologies. You go there, you have to learn about it, then you have to come back to your own real life. And your life is not just what you understand with your intellect, it's what you feel with your heart. And it's the sensations of your body. And you need to bring all of those together in order to live well. As far as I remember, there was also one piece in the book, I think it was concerning the, the topic of literacy, um, that the intelligence that the community had was based on their instinct and based on their feelings, and that made them move into action rather than knowledge. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Or is it just in <laughs> my great. own? <laughs> my no, own. I, I want to meet these people, whoever they are. They, they sound great. But look, we mustn't, I'm not bashing literacy. It's important to understand it's a great benefit. It's a tool, right? It's a great tool, right? But it's one of the many tools that we have to understand our lives. If we make, if we do everything this with this one tool, right? It's like, you know, you have one tool in your toolbox, it's a hammer. So what, you know, the old story, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You start bashing everything all the time. But that's not a great way to fix an electric motor, you know? You might need a screwdriver, you might need a soldering iron, you, you need, might need some pliers, you might need all sorts of other tools, right? So we need to remember we have all these other tools with which we can integrate interact with the world and understand the world. So I don't have time to go into all of it, but literacy is one of the four pillars of which our education should be constructed. And the other three are just as important. It's just literacy has been made to do too much work. We've thought it's so good, it'll fix everything for us. And we've become lazy. We've overlooked the importance of educating our emotions of developing emotional understanding. And I don't mean emotional intelligence, which, you know, somebody wrote a book about it, which essentially was putting the emotions in the service of the intellect, which can be done and it has its uses, but it's a very reductionist approach. The important point is to let ourselves understand a great deal more by educating ourselves through interacting with our own emotions. But there's more to be said about that perhaps another time. So there's one last quote I want to bring in. I don't know if we can fully answer it, but the time pressure will <laughs> maybe help us a little bit. Um, so one question you, you wrote in the book was, how come I can continue to have such foolish thoughts in my head when I know at every level that they are absurd? And how come those thoughts are so persistent and powerful. So <laughs> what's the answer to this question? <laughs> Please give me an abstraction. <laughs> the answer is that we imagine ourselves to be way more organized than we really are. We have an enormous amount of energy and an incredible potential. We, we, 
we can potentially study and learn so much and our minds rush around all over the place making connections and making sense of things but actually most of us lack cohesion it, 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 there, I mean, why, for example, if I, if I say, oh, I want to lose weight, right? Why is that so difficult? I mean, there's an entire industry dedicated to people who fail to lose weight. Or I want to stop smoking, right? I'll stop smoking. Or this heroin stuff, you know, I'm, I'm fed up with it. I'm not going to be a drug addict anymore. I'll just stop, right? But why can't we, right? We all imagine, well, I, well of course I could do it. You know, I'm, I'm not an addict. Ha <laughs> ha. I'm not that fat. I don't smoke cigarettes. I could do that easily. Ha ha ha. It's just those hopeless people over there. Well, that's not true. Actually, without a lot of work, we're all a mess. Some of us are fortunate that our addictions are socially acceptable, like shopping or work. You know? And nowadays, you know, overeating is very socially acceptable too. So get, be fat, that's right, celebrate it. Right? But the reality is we're not in control of ourselves. So it's not so much the question, why am I such a mess? It's why do I imagine I'm anything else? Why don't I get round to creating the discipline I need to pull myself together? And that's the great achievement, you know, to live a, I mean, one of the easiest ways to do it, and a very popular way, is to get a job. Just be told what to do by somebody else. It gives you a completely false notion of how incredibly cool and organized you are. But you're just doing what you're told. You've turned yourself into a slave for somebody else, but at least you know what you're doing. Right? You don't have a job. It's bloody hard. It's really hard. Thank you. I'm new to myself because I'm new to laugh a little about this. <laughs> okay, this is all the time we have today, Hugh. <laughs> Thank you for answering the question and for sharing a little bit about the book. I think there's so much more to talk about. Um, and maybe we can continue for three, four, five more episodes talking about your book. Um, but let's stop there for today. Um, for our listeners, if you want to know more about the powerhouse, please feel free to check out our webpage at www powerhouseclass.com and there's also a link to Hugh's webpage. Oh, I thought it stopped. <laughs> um, yeah, feel free to give us a, a feedback or to share our episode and uh, send us questions if you like and uh, we're glad to see you back again here on the Powerhouse podcast. Do you have anything to add? Sorry, I was talking now. <laughs> no, no, that's good. Okay. Right. Speak again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.